You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Hey, Midtown family. My name is Jay Hendricks, and I'm one of the pastors at our downtown church. We're excited to celebrate with you for our citywide Celebration Sunday coming up on November 18th with our family of churches. Our hope with having a family of churches is to get to see little Jesus-centered communities all over our city spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know it's not going to be a normal Sunday for most of you and a little bit more of a drive for some, but we're excited to see our family of churches gather together in one place at one time to worship Jesus at our downtown church building. We'll have one 10 a.m. gathering with food and fun right afterwards, and we'll also have a 5 p.m. worship and prayer night. It's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of food, a lot of games, so bring the kids, invite your neighbors, and we're going to have a good time. We're excited to celebrate and worship Jesus together. I see we have some, some visitors and some guests with us today. wanted to just give you a, a special welcome before we get into the sermon. I'm Ant, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, Pastor, here at Midtown Two Notch. Very glad that you're here uh, worshiping uh, with us. We'd love to connect with you even somewhat after our gathering is over with today, if that is uh, at all possible. Just want to extend a special uh, welcome to you and let you know that we're glad that you are here with us today. We're still working through our study on 1 Corinthians. Today we'll be in chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, uh, as Tremont just read again, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 through 13. We'll be dealing, we'll be changing topics a little bit. Today we'll be dealing with what I'm going to call the demands of love. The demands of love. Love places demands on us. When you really love someone, in some ways you become obligated to them. When you truly love someone, it's going to cause you to make sacrifices for them. It's going to cause you to do some things that you may not have previously done. Any relationship where there is true love actually has some amount of rules involved with that relationship. When you love something deeply, you're willing to sacrifice other things that you love less for the thing that you love more. Love places demands on us. It, it restrains us. It, and not only does it cause us to do things that we might not do if we didn't love someone, but it also keeps us from doing other things that we might want to do. Lo- love can restrain us oftentimes. I think many people in our culture are sick of, of uh, people placing rules on us, right? So you hear phrases like, no, don't, don't, don't let anyone tell you what to do. You do you, right? No one else can tell you how to live. There's this, this mantra kind of in our culture of you just do your thing. You worry about yourself. You're the most important person in your life, so you need to be worrying about you and not worry about anything else that anyone else is telling you to do. That's anti-love, just so we're on the same page. This is anti-love. Love will restrain you. Love will cause you to, to, to change your, your course of action or your behaviors if you truly love. To embrace a life of love is to embrace a life of rules and restraint. To embrace a life of love is to embrace a life of rules and restraint. If we're trying to go through our life without being restrained by others and their needs and their desires and that kind of thing, then we live opposite from the way that our Savior lived, right? We, we, we live opposite. We live in opposition to how he lived and thus in opposition to what he has called us to. Love places demands on us. 
Many of you, you, you're in relationships with people, you have friends, you have family, uh, to the point that because of your love that you have for them, there are certain things you expect them not to do. Certain things you expect them not to say, you expect them to not demean you, to not belittle you, to not insult you. Those are rules that govern the nature of your relationship because of the love that you have. That, that's appropriate. That, that, that is an appropriate expectation for you to have because you, you believe that love actually restrains and should restrain your loved ones from treating you in certain ways. The demands of love often call us to deny ourselves the things that we desire, to gain more of what we desire even more, which is to continue in love with the people in our lives. Love moves us into action. It leads us to self-denial. It works against our instincts to continue to do our own thing at times. Sometimes love just can't sit back idly when someone else is being harmed or is suffering. Love compels us into action. This is difficult for us. One of the reasons I think it's difficult is because some of the things that love will demand of us aren't things that are clearly spelled out in the Bible. Sometimes what, what love will call us to do, you, you won't find a specific verse that says to do that specific thing. You might feel, you might feel like the Holy Spirit has moved on your heart to encourage you, to encourage you maybe to go encourage someone else, right? And then maybe you're fearful about doing it. Maybe you don't, you don't know how they're going to respond. You don't know what they're going to say. So you're nervous about doing it. And then you can justify it by saying, well, the Bible didn't say that I have to right now go to this person and say this one specific thing, right? It's difficult to follow the demands of love oftentimes because we can easily justify not doing it because there's not an explicit verse that says we need to do that specific action that we might need to do because of our love for other people. Many people will call this gray areas, right? There are some things that are black and white, but this is more of a gray. This is more, I, like, I prefer to call it more complicated than gray. That there's different things that we'll have to consider. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, is going to deal with this specific issue with the Corinthians, that there is something that technically they're allowed to do, but Paul is saying, hey, you should not do this because of your love for your brothers and sisters. First Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to start at verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us, in quotations, possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So he's saying that there's a way that if you have knowledge, but if your knowledge is not at work uh, and, and compatible with love and does not work in synergy with love, then it actually is just causing you to be proud and it's not actually building you up. Verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, whom, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through him we exist. So they say all of us possess knowledge. So basically the way that it will work at that time, if you've been with us, you've heard us talk about the different temples that were present there in the city of Corinth. And so part of the, the problem of the Corinthians was they, they were to be a church that was in Corinth, but they also often had too much Corinth in the church, right? The culture that was there was infiltrating the church, and they were living the same way that people live who did not know Christ at all. 
So at a lot of these temples, the way that they would worship a god is they would come and they would, they would offer these, these animals up to these false gods that they would worship, and they would have these meals centered around these offerings. So they offer up the, the, uh, a lamb or some type of animal, and then they, but they would eat the, the meat that was cooked during this sacrifice. Now, at this time, they believed in many different gods, very polytheistic. They believed in a god of, of money, a god of success, a god of safety. And part of the way that they would try to earn blessing from these gods is by ongoingly, continuously having these, these idol worship practices and these, these meals where they would fellowship together and they would uh, pray to these false gods. And as they did that, they believed that these gods would provide things for them that they wanted and that they needed. Now, some of the Christians who were in this, this, this idol worship, they would uh, kind of, they felt bad about eating the food that was offered to these idols. They were like, hey, no, we used to eat this food when we used to worship the, the, the God of success or the God of money or whatever, but now we worship Jesus, so we shouldn't eat this food anymore. This, this, is, this is wrong for us to eat this food. This is what we did before we knew Jesus. This is our BC days. This is before Christ. This is what we do. And then you got some others who are like, but eating the food in and of itself isn't wrong. They're like, it. The, the false god who was worshiping, it doesn't exist. So if I'm in the area, then I can have some of the food. One of the things that they would do with the food after it was offered up to an idol, a lot of times they would have a lot of food left over. So they would have restaurants or banquets set up in the temple. And so they would serve that food in a restaurant. And so you could eat the food that was offered to an idol without uh, per se participating in the idol worship is what a lot of the Christians in Corinth were saying. But others were saying, no, 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 no. We need, we need to push that to the side. That's what we used to do. We don't need to eat this food anymore. So they write to Paul and they're like, Paul, what do, what do we do with this food that was offered up to these idols? It's not just that this food was served in the temple and in the restaurants and at banquets in the temple, but some of it would just be sent to the marketplace. They, they didn't want to waste the food. So we have perfectly good meat. All right, send the rib out to the marketplace. People can come pick it up, and we can, we can make more and more money off of this food. And so he gets into these difficult questions, and Paul even brings it up a few chapters later of, okay, well, if my friend, if they ate this food, if they bought this food from the marketplace that we think probably was sacrificed to an idol, and if I'm over their house, can I eat the food, or is that idol worship? Am I worshiping a false god if I eat this food? It's very complicated, if you would. The basic principle that, that Paul starts us with, again, in verse 1, he, when he says, all of us possess knowledge, sorry, verse 2, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. They say to him, hey, we all possess this knowledge. First of all, Paul is like, well, first of all, not everyone possesses the knowledge that you possess. And second of all, your love is more important than your knowledge. To have knowledge without love is arrogance. Paul says it, it puffs up. Continue on in verse 7 with me. Paul says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defined. That word conscience means the knowledge of what is right and wrong, right? So he's saying, they're saying to him, all of us possess this knowledge, but Paul's saying, however, not everyone actually understands what you're saying, and then when they eat this food, their, their, their understanding of right and wrong is thrown off. It's messed up when they see you eating the food that's offered to this idol. He says, in their conscience, being weak is defiled. Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no, no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 9 again, but take care that this right of yours does not become a stumbling block 
to the weak. That's the specific demand of love that we'll get into this week. Verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So you got to understand, it wasn't that easy for all of the Christians there. They had depended on this God of success, this God of money, this God of safety, uh, 10, 15 different gods that they would offer uh, these these offerings up to in worship. They would depend on these things. Let's say, I want to have safety in my travels. I have to travel a long distance. Traveling was not as easy back then as it is for us now. And so they're they're saying, okay, we're going to go to this temple. We're going to worship this God. We're going to pray that he's going to bless us with safety. Right. This this was this was ingrained in them. This is how they sought safety for for their travels. This is how they they sought success. So for them, it wasn't as simple as just uh, just saying, "Okay, I can eat this, but I'm not going to be dependent on this guy because there would still be something in them that was like, well, maybe this guy will still look out for me. When Paul is saying, no, 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 there's one God. There's one God, the Father, there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. This is who we worship. But it wasn't as simple for them. They will worship these false gods. There's this argument now that they do not worship these gods anymore. It just wasn't easy for many of them to transfer their trust from the false gods to the true and living God. Now, Paul acknowledges they're not technically wrong by saying that you can, you can eat the meat. But your love and care for this brother or sister should lead you to do something, should lead you to not do something that would be a detriment to them spiritually is his primary point. Regardless of what freedom and liberties they have, their love for this brother, this sister, should lead them to not do anything that would be a detriment to them spiritually. Paul's saying, I don't care if it's okay for you to do. I don't care if it's okay. I don't care if it's fine. I don't care if you have the right to do it. If it's, if it's going to cause any of your brother or sister to stumble at all, then you shouldn't do it. We should care about our brothers and sisters' spiritual health so much that we're willing to deny every right that we have if those rights cause one of our brothers or sisters to stumble. Uh, I cannot play fantasy football. It's, it's not that I wouldn't destroy you in fantasy football, because I would destroy you in fantasy football. I can't play fantasy football. It just takes up too much of my time. Time that I should be spending with my family, my wife, my kids, time that I should be uh, doing a number of things that I am called to do will be put into that, and so it's not good for me. I know that. I realize that about myself. Too much focus, too much energy. It would, it would dominate my mind on Sundays. It's just not, I know the chance of it leading me to sin is very high. Now, next year, August, something like that, you got a league and you need 10 people in your fantasy football league, and you got nine. Don't ask me. Don't even ask me. If you know that that is true of me, if you know that that is the case, and you would ask me and try to compel me to join your league anyway, you care about your preferences more than you care about me. Do not ask someone to do something at all that you know might cause them to stumble. This is what Paul is communicating to the brothers and sisters here in Corinth. Because we should deny any and every right that we have if those rights could cause one of our brothers or sisters to stumble into sin or idolatry. Paul, what Paul is writing is this, he, and, and hear me on this because people take this too far. Here's what Paul is not saying. This is not a, a, a passage specifically written to the weak to tell them to police the actions of the strong. 
If you just if you've been listening to what I'm saying and the only thing that's been in your mind is, okay, I got to tell this person I don't like that they do this. I got to get them to stop. You're doing it completely wrong. You're doing it completely wrong. You, you took a passage that was meant to cause you to focus on yourself and what you are doing that might be causing someone else to stumble and, and immediately in your mind thought about what you need to say to somebody else to stop them from doing what they're doing. Sometimes we skip self-examination just to try to tell other people what they need to be doing. Paul is saying we all need to consider ourselves. What might we be doing that might be causing one of our brothers or sisters to stumble? Now, that said, I 100% believe that it could be very appropriate to have conversations with brothers and sisters about things that they might be doing that might make it more difficult for you. I'm not saying don't have that conversation, but I'm saying if that's the only thing that came to your mind as you were hearing this passage being explained, then you care more about policing others than your own heart and the sin in your own heart. You care more about calling others to repentance than you care about calling yourself to repentance. This ought not to be among the church. And at the same time, I have seen way too many brothers approach our sisters with the topic of, I need you to not wear that because that's causing me to stumble. When I know they're not doing anything to fight lust in their lives at all. They're not spending time in prayer, not meditating on the word of God, not fighting it through accountability or anything like that. But it's like, okay, so she's supposed to fight your sin for you? Amen. Like you care more about like, you, 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 you care about what, what she is wearing, but you don't care enough to fight your, for your own holiness? This is not a passage for us to police others. It's not the primary thing that Paul is saying. Again, it can be okay to have those conversations, but this, this writing from Paul is not to absolve us of our responsibility to fight sin on our own. This is not what Paul is calling us to. At the same time, at the same time, if there's someone in your life group and you know, or somebody you just hang out with that's a believer, and you know, uh, I'll just throw out an example. Let's say if lust is a problem for, problem for them, especially when we're watching certain shows or movies or whatever, your life group shouldn't be going to watch that for your life group's hangout. You just shouldn't. It's the end. There's no discussion about this. There's no discussion. It should not ever happen. Ever. Because if it does, we care more about our preferences than we care about people. It should never be said amongst the church. There, I know of a life group, uh, not in our church, where there's a, a woman in the life group. She has some uh, struggles with just financial stewardship. A lot of people don't consider that a sin. If you're wasteful with the money that God has entrusted to you, the Bible would say otherwise. And so what they, try to, what they have decided to do, now their group loves to go to nice hangouts and they have to spend a significant amount of money. And so now this other woman in the group has a decision to make. Am I going to put myself in this situation where I'm going to be tempted to make decisions that I know are wrong, or am I just not going to hang out at all? All she's trying to do is grow in fellowship, grow in unity and oneness with the people that she is in fellowship with, and now she has to make this extremely complicated decision. But so what they decided was, okay, if it, if it is anything that will cause us to spend any significant amount of money, we're just not going to do it. We'll just find a cheaper way for us to hang out. That's them valuing her more than they value their preferences. They might love to do whatever the thing is, but they're willing to sacrifice that because they love her more. This is how the church should be. This is how the church should always respond. We care more about our sister and our brother's spiritual health than we care about our own freedoms, if you would. I know of a group of 
of, of Christians and are not part of our church, but they, uh, they, they believe in, and I would agree with them, that uh, the biblical practice of drinking alcohol is that being drunk is a sin, but have, drinking responsibly, I would say, is not a sin, biblically speaking, uh, based on a few verses that I don't have time to get into now. But the reason I bring that up is there was another group of Christians that were in fellowship with each other, and they used to enjoy uh, one or two drinks responsibly together in their time of hanging out. And then they found out that one of the women in the group actually struggled with alcoholism. And they was like, we'll never touch it again. We'll never even bring it. If it's at my house, I won't even have the alcohol there at my house because I don't want it to be a temptation for you. This is the denying of our rights for the good of others, for the spiritual health of our brothers and sisters. Whatever I need to do, whatever I need to give up so it's not a hindrance to you and your love for Jesus, I'm ready and willing, not just individually, but communally and collectively as well. It's a great way to respond to this passage. I've seen uh, believers before, when someone has a boundary that they've set up to protect themselves from, from, from kind of falling into sin or idolatry, I've seen other believers make fun of them. I've seen individuals make fun of them. I've seen groups of other believers making fun of them for this boundary that they have for their personal holiness. How perverted is that? Do we truly care about our own preferences so much that we would discourage our brothers and sisters in their fight? Should, should we not encourage them? Should we not say whatever you got to do for, for your own benefit, that you might follow Christ more closely, that you might obey him more? You do that. Should that not have been applauded as an act of Christian maturity? Should it not have been encouraged and held up and say, this is what it looks like to fight against sin and fight against idolatry? You set up whatever boundaries you have to set up so that you might walk with Christ as he has called you to. How selfish are we if we would discourage our brothers and sisters in their fight, if we would belittle them or, or demean them for them acknowledging the weakness they have and properly and appropriately fighting against it. We must be sensitive to those around us. We should encourage any and all actions and steps that are taken to fight against sin and to fight against the worship of something other then God, as a church, that should be who we are. That should be what we're all about. What are we called to more than helping people fall out of, out of love with sin and into love with God? What are we called to more than that? This is the essence of what we are called to do is point people to Jesus and do everything we can to help them love him more. This is who we are. This is who Christ has made us to be. This is who our God is. This is what our God is about. And that is to shape how we act, how we respond to each other as believers. That we will be relentlessly devoted to helping others fall out of love with sin and in love with God. Relentless devotion. That's how the church should be described. I was thinking through this. I was thinking through what, what are things that get in the way that will cause us as a church to not live like this? What are things that might hinder us from, from living this out, as Paul would, would call us to? Reasons that we would reject the demands of love. First one that comes to mind might be obvious at this, at this point. We don't hate sin enough. We don't hate sins enough. Reasons we reject the demands of love. We don't hate it enough. We will not be a church that denies our rights so that others might fall out of love with sin and in love with God if we're just over here loving our sin and not hating it. Right. Like if we don't hate our own sin, if we don't we don't hate sin in the totality of what it is, we're not going to be willing to deny our own right so that someone else can fall out of love with their sin. 
One of the things I was just thinking through in my family, I got uh, twin boys, they're five years old now, is I'm trying to think through simple ways to try to explain to them what it is to be a Christian, what, how we want to live as a family. So I came up with a thing that I call the motto. I believe if you ask my kids today, what's the motto? I believe they still remember. I don't tell them as frequently as I, as I wish I did. It's love Jesus, kill sin. That's the motto. That's it. Love Jesus, kill sin. This is what we are to be about, that we would hate our sin. I would say, and I think some people probably disagree with me on this. That's okay. I would say God's biggest enemy in the Bible, I don't even believe it's Satan. I believe it's sin itself. Satan existed and was not an enemy of God until sin came in to his heart. Right? The, the world was as it should be. There, there, was no, there was not brokenness and sin and suffering and death in the world when Satan was there until he led Adam and Eve to sin. I would say sin is the greatest enemy of God. God is relentless. I'm talking about cover to cover in the Bible in his war against sin. Relentless. He absolutely hates sin. Sin its, it's existence, it's, it's, its presence with us is the reason that we have everything from pain, sickness, poverty, violence, grief, death, mourning. It's all coming from sin. It is destroying and corrupting the very fabric of creation, the good creation that God made. Sin is what is destroying it. it is, it's what leads us to idolatry and hatred and insecurity and division in families, division in the body of Christ. It is sin. It is the most destructive force in the universe. Sin. May we hate it. May we loathe it. May we not try to make peace treaties with sin, but may we seek to destroy it wherever it is. There's nothing we ought to hate more than sin. Paul, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, writing to the church at Colossae, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Earthly will be anything that's considered natural, that's considered natural outside of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, put it to death. Kill it. He didn't say try to keep it at bay. He didn't say see how close you can get to it without actually jumping into it, right? Put it to death. Kill it. Whatever the life source is of it, cut it off is what Paul says. Galatians 5.24, Paul says, Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. The word flesh means a sinful desire or a sinful nature, I should say. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He didn't just say crucify sinful actions. He said those who are in Christ have crucified the sinful desires. That we fight against the desires in and of themselves, the, the passions that would lead us to sin, that would lead us away from God. The sin isn't just on a hand level. It's not just what we do, but it's on a heart level. It's also what we desire. And we start at the root of it when we fight sin. We don't just stop trying to do this specific thing or this list of things. We fight that our desires might be different, that we would so choke out the sin in our lives that we would seek to not even act or, or, or long with or even participate in the desires that we have that are against him. As Christians, we hate sin. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says, if your right eye, right eye causes you to sin, cut it out and throw it away, Jesus said. Now he's not speaking literally, but he is trying to grab our attention and saying, hey, this, you, you fight this, you kill this. If it hurts you to fight sin, 
kill it, fight it. Whatever it is that has caused you to continue to go back to the sin, you kill it. You, you, you cut it off, you cut it out, you throw it away. That is how we deal with sin. We don't manage it. We kill it. We don't see how close we can get to it. We kill it, Jesus says. He wants us to be ruthlessly violent against our sin. We fight it to put it to death. He wants to awaken our hearts out of our apathy against fighting sin. He wants to awaken us that that sin that we see in our life, that we know of, that that are in our lives, we would no longer be apathetic about it. We would no longer be like, yeah, this is just who I am. This is just me. This is my personality. You know, you know, you know how I am. I got a temper. That's just, that's just my personality. You know, you know that about me, right? He's trying to awaken us out of our apathy. That we have been lulled to sleep. We've been lulled to sleep when we're in war with sin. He's calling us to take up arms and fight. Do you hate your sin enough to analyze the different freedoms that you have, the different things that you give your time and your energy to, to ask the question, is this something that I should stop doing? What is the eye that I need to cut out and throw away? What is the thing that I desire to have that it would hurt for me to let go of that I need to throw away? These questions are presented to us as we look at how we are, how we are called to respond to sin. I said, for me, it's fantasy football, right? It's perfectly fine. It's not a sin to do fantasy football. Maybe you need to cut it out. I don't know. What is it for you? What is it for you? Maybe it's something that takes up maybe too much of your time, maybe too much of your attention. Maybe you sacrifice people for this thing that you desire. Maybe this thing is causing you to want to neglect someone that you should not be neglecting. Do you evaluate the different things in your life that you give your time and attention to, to even ask the question? Do we even have the, the, the courage, the strength to ask the question? Do we have the, the courage to hold everything that we have with open hands before the Lord? Lord, whatever it is, I got it, I got it right here. If you want to take it out of my hands today, you can have it. Whatever it is, if, it, if it's causing one of my brothers and sisters to stumble, if it's keeping me from living the way that you call for me to live, I hold it right here. I don't hold it like this. I don't hold it with tight, clenched fists. I hold it right here, ready to lay it down at your altar that you might do with it what you will. It's what he calls us to, that we will so hate sin that anything he wants to take away from us, we will be willing to. Do you have any hobbies or habits that would benefit you spiritually if you drop them? Is there any type of media that you consume that you know it's causing you to struggle in certain ways that you don't want to let go of. Are there any relationships with people that have become idolatrous in nature and you need to change them in some degree? Are there any practices that you engage in consistently that maybe they take so much out of you that you neglect the things that you should be doing as a child of God? What are those things that may be fine for others to do that are not fine and are not okay for you to engage in? We need to know those things. In our life groups, you need to know those things for other people in your life group so you can better serve them and love them so that you can correct when need be. I need to let the people in my life know what those things are as I, proceed, as I seek uh, accountability and freedom from these things. And if we do not hate our own sin enough to deny ourselves the things that are bad for us, it's no wonder that we won't deny our desires for the sin, to, to try to fight against the sin of others. If we won't even search through our own hearts to look for what are the things that we need to let go of, of course you're not going to deny your preferences to fight against someone else's sin. You don't even hate your own sin. We don't even want to crucify our own sin. 
Do you hate your brothers and sisters' sin? If you're in a life group, you likely know people's sins and you know their struggles, most likely. You spend time in prayer for them. For the people that you know that are, that are going to war with sin, I'm talking every single day, every single one of us. We wake up, if you're a believer, you're in a fight against sin every single day. Sin is wanting to harm you, wanting to destroy you, wanting to destroy your family, your relationships, your walk with the Lord every single day. Do you go to war on behalf of your brothers and sisters in prayer? Do we hate the sin that is harming our brothers and sisters? Are we sick of it? Do we see how it's destroying and corrupting us and God's good creation? If we do hate it, I believe we'll be willing to make sacrifices for the spiritual health of our brothers and sisters. There's a great level of sacrifice that is required if we truly despise our own sin and our own idolatry and the sin and idolatry of our brothers and sisters. I brought this one up a little bit earlier. The second point, reasons we reject the demands of love is we care more about preferences than people. We care more about preferences to people. How selfish are we if we don't care enough about our sisters and brothers' health and spiritual prospering and growth in the Lord to, sa to sacrifice simple preferences? If you're unwilling to sacrifice what you, what, what you would like to do, maybe with your life group or maybe with another friend group that you have, for the spiritual good of another believer, how selfish have we become? We have become unwilling to love. We are refusing to appropriately care for the souls of our friends, our brothers, our sisters. I want to check out how Paul continues to describe this refusal to love that is currently present in the Corinthian church. We're going to move to verse 11, same chapter in 1 Corinthians. Verse 11, Paul says, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Paul said that if you would hold on to your preferences, your freedoms, to the neglect of the spiritual health of your brothers and sisters, Paul said it is destroying them. He says it is destroying the one that Christ died for. He's saying it is destroying them. Jesus loved this person so much that he died for them, and you're working to destroy what Christ is doing in them, is what Paul was saying. Verse 12, thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. I'll read that again. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding, wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. He's saying that because of the love, because of the love that Christ has for this person, as he displayed when he died for them, because of how much he loves them, because of how much he's united with them, that he takes it personally when we sin against them and harm them spiritually. He takes it personally as if you are doing that thing against him, is what Paul is saying. He is so connected, he is so close with this brother or sister that he died for, that he's saying, if you sin against them in this way, I see it like you are sinning against me. You have people like that in your life, right, where you're so close to them, you love them so much, that if somebody harms them, you take it as if they harmed you. That's what Paul is saying, Jesus is like for his, for his people whom he has died for. He loves them so much that when you sin against them in that way, he says, hey, you sinned against me. First thing I want to point out, just real quick, because I think we got to sit in this moment for a second. Can you imagine that Christ loves you that much? Can you imagine that he is, that you are so dear to him, that he cares so much about you, that if somebody sins against you, he's like, he, he takes it as if they have sinned against him. Do you understand the depths of his love? How, how many, don't raise your hand because some of y'all, you, your sin will come out if I say it. How many, how many people in your life do you love that much? 
that anything anybody does against them, you, you are offended as if they did that against you. The level of love that you have for that person, Christ loves you so much more and is so intimately united with you and every experience that you have in life. That he takes it as if someone sins against you, he takes it as if they have just sinned against him. How deep is his love for us? How much must he love us that he would take it that way? That's the first point. The second point, which was Paul's main point here, is he's saying, Christian, if you are elevating your preferences over the people in your life, Christ says, I take it like you're sinning against me. I look at it like you are sinning against me. I look at it as you, you, you are destroying what I am doing in this person's life. I take it personally, is what Paul is pointing out. Paul is saying this person that Christ died for, this person that, Paul, that, that, that God created in his image, this person that Jesus left heaven for and came to earth as a man, this person that Jesus was hung on a cross for, publicly, brutally tortured and mocked and murdered, this person that, that Jesus suffered for hours for on the cross, the person that he is, he is coming back to fully redeem and take to be with him, he's saying you're sinning against them. This is someone that I have gone to through great lengths to save, to, to reveal my love to, to, to connect with, to unite with myself so that they can know me, so that they can be with me forever. And if you sin against them, I take it personally. I take this very personally. If you are hindering their spiritual growth, when, he, when Jesus came and he, he died that we might know him, that we might grow in him, and then when well, another Christian sins against them in such a way as to hinder the growth that Jesus is trying to accomplish in their lives, I take that personally. I take this very personally. I think his last words in verse 13 really drive his point home. Paul says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest it make my brother stumble. I don't know why y'all go vegan. I don't know what made y'all go vegan. This is the only thing that would ever possibly make me go vegan. Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again a day in my life. Just like that. The level of sacrifice, the level of being willing to sacrifice this thing that I love because of something that I love more, which is the spiritual health of my brother or sister, Paul says, whatever freedom I have to deny myself, I'll do it. Whatever sacrifice I have to make, I'll do it. Whatever right I have to deny myself or my brothers or sisters' spiritual health, I'll do it. Whatever thing that I have that I enjoy, if it causes one of my brothers or sisters to stumble, I'll let it go. Some of us, I believe, need to let go of some free time that we have. Even if it's just to use that time to pray. Even if it's just to use that time to pray for the spiritual health of our, of our brothers and our sisters. And when we do this, we look so much like Christ. So much like our Savior. And I'm talking about, when I'm talking about giving up free time, I'm saying maybe even just on the way here. We're gathering together. We want to hear God's words preached. We want to see people's lives change. Even just praying before the gathering starts on the way here. Are there things that we could sacrifice for the spiritual health and spiritual life of our brothers and sisters. Christ, because of the demands of love, he, he had the right to never leave heaven, yet the demands of love compelled him to come to this broken world full of pain and suffering and sin. He had the right to never be mistreated by anybody. He is God. 
He had the right to never be mistreated, yet the demands of love that compelled him to come into a world where when he was just two or three years old, the king of the land sent hitmen, hitmen to his town to kill him. And he accepted it. On more than one occasion, there was a mob of his own countrymen that went to grab him to kill him. He had the right to live without suffering, yet the demands of love compelled him to come to this broken world where there was pain, where there was harm, where there was abuse. And he endured that pain for us. He was ultimately tortured and crucified by the very people he created. He had the right to never be punished or condemned for any type of guilt. He was perfect. He should have never been punished at all. But he, he bore on his back the judgment for sin that we all deserve when he put the sins of the world on himself so that you and I could know and worship him forever. He had the right to never die. He is God. He is the author of life. He created life himself. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anything that lives is a result of him. He had the right to never, ever die. And he came for the purpose of dying. The demands of love restrained him to the cross where he died for the sins of his people. He gave up his right to not suffer because he wanted us to know him and live forever with him in a place where we will never suffer. If our Savior did not cling to his rights so that we might have spiritual life, when our spiritual life was on the line, if he did not cling to his rights, who are we to cling to our rights when our brothers and sisters' spiritual health is on the line? May we be like Christ. May we first look to Christ and realize the demands of love and how they restrained him for our good, for our spiritual health. And then may we look to our brothers and sisters with the love that Christ has given us, with the willingness to sacrifice any right or any freedom that we may be holding on to too closely. May we remember this whenever we feel entitled to cling to our rights. May we remember that we are no worthy of clinging to our rights and freedoms than our Savior is that we are, more, we are no more worthy or entitled to have any right that he himself neglected, that he might save us. He, den he denied them. He let go of his rights so that we might lay hold to eternal life in him, a life we didn't deserve. So following him looks like us laying down our rights so that others might know him more. Following him looks like us loving him and loving the spiritual health of our brothers and sisters more than we love our own freedoms. It's the only correct and reasonable response to the love that we have been shown. It's the only reasonable response. Nothing else would make sense for us to have received this love and then refuse to show it to others. That's not a reasonable way to respond. We should respond with a sacrificial love, the same sacrificial love that we have been shown. In a few moments, we'll open up the, the table for communion as we seek to do this in remembrance of him. I just wanted to be on our minds. This is the, the, the broken bread, which resembles his broken body. The, the juice, which resembles his blood, is the reminder of Christ denying his own rights. It's a reminder of part of the reason we worship him is because of the demands of love that he submitted himself to. It's a reminder that he didn't even hold on to his own life that we might know him our good, loving Savior. What a love he has for us. If you're a visitor with us today and you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, we would love for you to partake in communion with us. We have the setup right here uh, in the back, and after I pray, I'll open up the communion table. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would uh, ask that you not participate in this. This is something that Christ set up very specifically in a sacred way for his people. I'll go ahead and pray for us, and then I'll open up the communion table.
Father, whew, thank you so much for your love. Father, where, we would, where would we be if you did not love us enough to lay down your rights for us? What would our lives be like? We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have this, this fellowship where we've seen you work in so many different ways. If you have not come to, to lay down your rights, even your own life for us, Father, would you inspire us with your love? Would we be so full of your love in our hearts that we are compelled, that we are moved to live as you live, to sacrifice as you sacrifice, Father? Would our time of communion today just be a sweet reminder of the love that you have shown us, Father? We need your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. We need you to uproot in us this, this desire that we have to cling to freedoms that we feel like we have. Would you cause us to never again care more about our preferences than we care about people? Would you cause us to never again, never again go through life without a deep hatred for sin? Knowing that at the cross we see both your hatred for sin and we see that you cared about us more than you cared about your own comfort and your own freedoms and your own liberties. We're so grateful. Father, where will we be without you? It's in Christ's name that I pray.